Hi, welcome back to another episode of the FASD Family Life Podcast. This is the podcast where we get real about raising children and youth with fetal alcohol spectrum disorder. And in this particular series called Mom Talk, I have the awesome privilege of talking with other moms who, like me, are also raising children, youth, and adults with fetal alcohol spectrum disorder. And you're in for a treat with this episode as I speak with Shanna Moore. She's a mom with many years of experience raising a child with FASD. And, you know, when she first Googled about FASD, she she saw all the negatives, all the horror stories that, that sometimes you do when you Google FASD. And she, she just decided, no, I, I'm not going to live in fear. I'm going to, I'm going to learn all about this and I'm going to parent differently. And through her journey of parenting, she's learned an awful lot. And today she's a tremendous advocate, not only for her own child who has FASD, but also as the FASD training manager for the FASD network of Saskatchewan, where she works. And she's also recently been appointed to the board of Can FASD. That's the Canadian FASD Research Network. So real privilege to be able to have Shanna on the show today. Um, and we just get real talking mom to mom about what it is raising teenagers with FASD, some of the highs, some of the lows. And I love that she just drops these truth bombs throughout the whole episode. Uh, it was great conversation. I hope that you enjoy it as well. Stay tuned until the end of the episode too, because I want to talk to you about RenFASD, an international initiative happening in September to raise awareness and funds for FASD. So stay tuned to the end of the episode to hear more about that and how you can get involved. If you haven't already subscribed, please do so because I've got amazing episodes coming up. A couple more mom talks as we wind down the summer here in Edmonton, Alberta, where I live. But then in the fall, I'm launching another brand new season. And this is going to be my world tour where I chat with caregivers, professionals, and researchers around the world about fetal alcohol spectrum disorder in their communities. So I want to take you along on that world tour with me. So make sure you subscribe so you don't miss any episodes and feel free to share the podcast with the people in your lives who are also touched by fetal alcohol spectrum disorder, because you know, as we know better, we can do better and we really are stronger together. So thank you so much. Whether you're on a walk, running errands, or just relaxing at home, which you deserve to do, I encourage you to settle in with me, grab a cup of coffee or a nice cold glass of water as Shanna Moore and I talk about real life real experiences, raising kids with fetal alcohol spectrum disorder. Let's talk about grade eight. That's a hard time in life. So let's talk about this year for you. What are the wins? What are some of the challenges? And what have you learned through that that you would share now with other families? So grade eight has been, I would say, our toughest year yet, for sure. I think it's a really hard time because in Saskatchewan, where um, our schools are grade um, kindergarten to grade eight and then nine to 12. Um, And so I think it's hard because I'm sure maybe you've seen similar experiences when the kiddos start to to mature faster than our kiddos do. And so social connections are hard and friendships are hard. Um, And my kiddo presents incredibly well. So she, you know, can fool a lot of people in a sense I always call it as one of her dynamite life skills. She presents like she, you know, she doesn't want anyone to know that she actually is having some challenges or some struggles understanding something in school. Um, And so she, you know, is really good at, at getting through and I guess it's kind of like a survival technique and so yeah school was not a good it was tough to get through school this year and then that transition that she's going into high school um, I think is as much as she is excited is anxiety inducing as well lots of changes um, 
And mental health has been at the forefront in our house um, pretty intensely for the past year. And so um, navigating those systems with a kiddo with FASD has presented lots of challenges. And you get a really, you know, those systems exist. I know it from the work I do. I know how, you know, um, in a sense, I don't, I don't know. I, I don't want to say broken. I think it's a system that's never worked uh, for individuals with FASD because we know mental health professionals are often not trained in FASD. So they don't always make the connections. So navigating that has been pretty intense and recognizing that systems are absolutely reactive and not proactive. It's been a little bit, how do you say it? It's been more isolating, I think, this year than it ever has been in the past. Yeah. Um, and that's coming off of COVID. This is a year that we were yeah. supposed to not be isolated. Yeah. Um, but it's isolating. And as a, as a mom with five, I remember when my first child was in eighth grade. So, um, so we have junior high here in most of our schools. So we go K to six, then seven, eight, nine is its own segment of junior high. And then we move up to high school in most in Edmonton public anyway. And she was in eighth grade and she's not FASD. Grade eight was just a struggle. And I remember a grade eight teacher telling me, Robbie, you know what? This is okay. Grade eight is the armpit of life. And I thought that's very helpful. I'm going to hold on to that. Yeah, that's a good <laughs> just one. to remember, you know, like developmentally, like socially, emotionally, developmentally, just where we are as humans yeah. uh, in, in eighth grade, 13 years old, that's just hard. 13, 14 years old. That's just a hard yeah. time for everybody. And then add on the complexities of a neurodiversity, add on the dismaturity that you're talking about. And, yeah. and so, yeah, this is a time when teachers are expecting a lot more of you. And you look yeah. typical, so you better be able to perform and absolutely can't. It's not won't, it's can't. And yeah. then also, as you said, the peers are, they're maturing at a faster rate and you're yeah. left behind and friendships fall away, quite honestly. Yeah. You know, our kids get left left out, left behind. We've experienced that certainly. And that's devastating. And you see that as a parent and there's nothing you can do. No, no. To make that feel, any easier. Yeah. No, there isn't. I feel like our kids are the kids that get written off in a sense. And I don't like that expression, but it just, it kind of feels like. Well, kids move on, right? And and our kids maybe can't keep up socially and, and they maybe they're the odd one. And so they don't get the humor. They don't get the whatever. And they also yeah. aren't at that age where, you know, at 14 here, you can get a learner's license. Well, most kids with FASD, that's not going to be a great idea to get a learner's at 14. Yeah. And then some kids at 14, 15 start getting their first job. Our kids aren't ready for that either. So our other kids are just progressing that along those developmental milestones at a typical rate. And our kids are unable to. Yeah. So I think it's getting creative. Like we've had some success. I, I share lots. Like we, um, when COVID hit, my daughter was a hockey player in the past and she really enjoyed hockey. But then when COVID hit and stuff, she just wasn't into it. We weren't sure what hockey was going to look like. So I said, yeah, you don't have to play. And then, right. Hockey is also age-based, right. You're playing with peers of your age, which as our kids age isn't always the best fit either. Um, and so she left um, hockey and we put her in diving. It's such a cool, fun, unique fit. And she's really doing really well. And it's almost a therapeutic kind of sport because she started a bit later. She's with in a group of, uh, in her class, it's like kids of all ages. And so it's really cool um, that she has made friendships there. And so that's been a huge in a sense, saving grace for us. Um, She loves it. She does really, really well at it. And with her, she has a really heightened sensory profile. Um, She always has. She's done occupational therapy on a weekly basis since she's been seven years old. She's almost 14. 
And we'll, you know, I'll always push for that service and that therapy because it's huge. It's, it's, it's made such an incredible difference in our lives. Um, but learning like through that and then what the inputs and stuff she gets, um, through diving, um, like it's pretty regulating for her and like it's almost therapeutic and then she loves it. Well, it is therapeutic, not almost it is because does she need the deep pressure? to help regulate. So that's a yeah. proprioception. And so she certainly gets that from that impact into the water and then the yeah. pressure of the water around her and then trying to swim in the water. That's all deep pressure work. So it helps regulate yeah. her. That was interesting. You talked about OT being so impactful. You had that from early on. I had no idea that OT could be helpful. I had no idea how I could serve my family until about three years ago. Well, by oh. then my kids were teens. Yeah. Why didn't you talk to us as parents? Like what what does that look like? Why is OT helpful? What has it done in your family? It helps that body regulation, right? And so it's a whole idea that your body needs to be regulated before your mind needs to be regulated, before your mind can be regulated. And so when she was quite young, I used to notice stuff like she would sit on the floor and spin and spin and spin, like I'd get nauseous watching her. And so I was kind of thought like, hey, there's something more. And then we got connected to a place called Therapy in Saskatoon, which is sensory-based occupational therapy. And she had an assessment done there. And then the recommendation was that she go on a, a weekly basis. We have been very lucky that we've had the same OT for like seven and a half years. So she knows my kiddo quite well. It's pretty cool. Like we've learned stuff with her. Like she's at places that I honestly, at some points didn't know if we'd ever get. Um, And I think so much of what we've seen in the past when she was younger was a result of the environment um, because her, her sensory profile is so heightened that she learns like on a regular basis, how to regulate her body, which, you know, then helps regulate her mind. And um, she's a pretty cool self-advocate now because she's pretty in tune with how her body's impacted. Yeah, it's huge. And I know lots of times, even in the work that we do, right, we talk about, we get calls from other caregivers and, you know, my kiddo needs therapy or this. And my, my always go to is have they tried OT first? Because if your if your body is like when my, when, when my daughter is heightened, if she's really heightened, trying to connect with her in those spaces isn't going to work. I have to wait. We have to work for her to come down and then we make that connection. Okay. Tell the moms, dads who are listening, what does heightened mean? Like, tell me the ugly, what does that really look like? Um, So when she was younger, I would say it would be like, you know, I don't want to call them meltdowns, but a sensory overload that resulted in crying, potentially screaming and for hours at a time, right? Like three, four hours we're, we're pretty in tune now. So we even sometimes can hear it sometimes if she starts to go there, just it's like her voice, just the tone just changes. And then we're just like, Kate, hey. I remember when she was younger, we had the sensory brush that you can like buy off Amazon or whatnot. You brush her arms and stuff. And I could take her from like super elevated, really agitated, you know, crying, screaming to like calm head on my shoulder, you know, within minutes, just doing some of those strategies, providing lots of deep pressure, as you mentioned, right? Cause that's, their bodies aren't sometimes producing enough serotonin, which then isn't producing the melatonin. And so that deep pressure is a natural way to do it. She, you know, for years has slept with a weighted blanket. I always said, you know, before it was a fad, we had them, yeah. you know, so learning all those different pieces and, you know, and then the assessments can happen in the school system as well. They can do OT assessments in the school. Um, and I really advocated. I remember the first school she was in, they said, well, you did an OT assessment at home, so we don't need one in the school. And I said, no, you need one in the school as well, because the sensory inputs are very, very different. It's different environments. So you need one in the school. And I have one at home as well, as I'm sure you can relate, is when you're a parent, um, sometimes when you're doing that advocacy work, you're a parent and you're not always believed. So you can tell them every strategy in the book, but when an OT puts it into paper and in a report, they'll listen to the OT report and not mom. 
And if you've handed them the report, they're not going to read it. Yeah. So if they pay for it and it happens in their school and they meet with the OT, then you have a better chance uh, that they'll listen. Yeah. And so, and it's all kinds of, yeah, she's a, she's a seeker. Um, She seeks a lot of movement to regulate her body. And so it's just learning all those different pieces that she can. And as she ages, um, her sensory needs have changed, Mm -hmm. you know, and things like this year we saw when she had a lot of anxiety that her sensory profile was even more heightened. So for example, her closet, I have organized by texture. And so of clothing. So when she's really, really heightened, we have to find the softest clothing, the softest, sorry. And so there, you know, it could be like, oh, you just bought them some new clothing and then they refuse to wear it. Well, maybe in a couple of weeks she can wear it. But right now she's going to gravitate to like the pajama pants and the Sherpa hoodie, really soft stuff. Yeah. And and so her bedroom's done through a sensory lens. It's very calm, certain smells, you know, the sheets are soft, the blankets are soft, you know, like everything's. How about you the know, colors? The colors, do they have to be soft? Yeah, calm, calm. Yeah. We try and go with a really zen. A zen feel sleep has been very hard for her for many years. Um, she does have help now through medication to sleep. Um, but for I don't think she slept for 13 years ever through a night. Mm-hmm. Um, she was always up. You know, we, we've done the weighted blanket, the smells, like everything. So all the sensory stuff as much as we could before we had to, yeah. you know, ask for, for more help than, the, you know, we did the melatonin and everything. It just wasn't working. Wasn't enough. Yeah. I think it's useful to consider medication, not as a fix, but as one of the tools in the toolbox. Yeah. Right. Like it's one, it's one of the therapeutic tools we can use to help our children to be yeah. regulated or to get sleep. Cause if you don't get enough sleep, there's no way you're going to be regulated. You're no. probably not. I know I'm not, if I don't get enough sleep, you know, things bug me more than they did. Yeah. And then your anxiety is heightened. And as parents, you're not really sleeping because yeah. you know, nights. Are... Oh, I know I've got five. <laughs> I know. Yeah. <laughs> your nights, nights aren't good when, when you have kiddos with heightened anxiety that don't sleep, right. It's just, it's nights become really intense. And so, yeah, that's what we've had to do is to get some help for her to sleep. And yeah, like I said, our whole day is done through a sensory lens. It's part of the conversation advocacy I do when she's going into school, like she's going to need quiet spaces. If it gets loud, I'm the mom that says, can she please not do gym class? And they're like, what? You know, because I say, you know, she's a super active kid, but the gym's really loud. Yes. So said it, you know, that puts her in a, you know, so why does she have to do gym? Yes. She can do it outside just fine. She's active. She does diving. She, yeah. That'll be interesting as you move to high school, because I know here uh, in, in Alberta, you have to have phys ed 10, grade yeah. 10 phys ed in order to graduate high school. But I wonder if you'll be able to advocate and say, um, can we counter drive her diving as phys ed? Because she can't be in a big gymnasium like yeah. that. I remember when my kids were little, especially my son, he's very much a sensory seeker, like you're talking about and needs that deep pressure, very athletic, very active. And when he was in an elementary school, grade one, you know, um, he would get into that gymnasium and he would be yelling. Do you remember your kid ever like yelling down the noise? That's how I used to say it. Like yeah, if you vacuuming, she'd yeah. 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 I didn't always understand it, but I, I became aware of it. You know, when I would vacuum when they were little, they'd all start hollering, yelling, like they're scared or just yelling or, and then I learned, okay, they seem to be yelling down the noise is the way I put it. And so I would just go, okay, you guys, mommy's going to vacuum. You guys ready? Yeah, we're ready. And then they wouldn't have to holler. Yeah. Same if I put on a blender, you know, they would yell because they were startled and they had to compensate for that noise. But if I say, hey, okay, noise is coming. Okay, mom. 
and then it was okay. But in the gym class, he would get in there and he would yell and yell and yell and, and then become so overstimulated. He couldn't do well in gym class. And yet he's probably one of the most athletic kids and capable kids in the class. Yeah. Let's take a quick break. Hey, my name is Oscar, and I'm the host of the Potter Discussion Podcast. The Potter Discussion is the ultimate Harry Potter podcast, discussing everything from Harry Potter, Fantastic Beasts, and the entire Wizarding World fandom. This isn't your everyday Harry Potter podcast, because we have regular in-depth discussions about obscure and fascinating topics. So if you enjoy in-depth character breakdowns, Harry Potter quizzes, and you're a Harry Potter super fan, this podcast is for you. Search for the Potter Discussion Podcast in your favorite podcast app or click the link to learn more. That's funny. My daughter, when we do chores in the house, she is like told me she she can't vacuum. Okay. She mm-hmm. can't she said I can't the sound, it's too much. So I usually trade chores with her. I'll be like, I'll vacuum you clean the bathroom. Um, yeah, but it's just she said I just I just can't do it. It's a trigger. It makes me really anxious. I don't like how it makes my body feel. Well, it um, vibrates and it's loud and it's yeah. heavy. And I know my kids don't like to vacuum either. Um, so I prefer that they vacuum because it gets more than if they sweep. But I'm like, I need you to vacuum or sweep the floor. It's your choice they always choose sweep because a vacuum is way too intense. Yeah, it's just, it's too loud. What about a car wash? Talking about loud. Have you ever like gone through one of those automated car washes and had her just like, <gasps> we haven't. No, no, we You're haven't done smart. that for a long time. Um, <laughs> we did like a, a couple of weeks ago out for supper and, you know, walked in the restaurant it was really loud and had to leave. Um, and she just said, it's, it's noisy. And I said, you're right. It's noisy. We're not going to stay. Like, I'm not going to make you stay in an environment that's, that's really loud. Very Um, good adaptation. Yeah. Yeah. And she does have ear deafeners that I got made when she was quite a bit younger. Um, like when she played hockey, I'd noticed when we were going into rinks that were a little bit more tinny that had a little bit more echo, she would kind of shut down. She's never really been one to act out. She internalizes, um, and I could just see her whole body kind of sink in. And so we went out, they weren't cheap. I think they're about 150 bucks to get made, but they put molds in her ears and then made these earplugs that filter out the background noise. And I thought kids are mean. I didn't want her wearing like giant headphones that the noise canceling one that looked like big orange red ones or something yeah so something more subtle and that we too would fit under her helmet as well yeah she could put them on or she could put them in her ears and nobody's none the wiser but even like at diving we notice like she she does really well but it's it's a big pool and sometimes synchros on at the same time and whatnot so if the pool is really really noisy it throws her off she just you know doesn't um, do as well. So she's really, you know, and I think learning all of that. And that when she was younger, I always used to think, you know, when she would act out at the grocery store or whatnot, I didn't understand the sensory piece at the time and thought, oh, it's just attention seeking behavior. And really it's a reaction to the environment. Yes. I love that you said that. So when parents are thinking, you know, attention seeking behavior, and, and that's what it gets labeled because that's what it maybe looks like. No, no, no. There's a need here. This is behavior yeah. communicating a need. You know, I love, I always quote, Ross Green, Dr. Ross Green, and he says, kids do well if they can. So if they're not doing well, what's that underlying need? He talks about lagging skills and that kind of thing. And I agree with the lagging skills, but for our kids, it's also a neurodiversity. Let's look who that, let's look through that sensory lens. Let's look through that dismaturity lens. What's going on here? Yeah. And and I think as, as parents and caregivers, you have to be kind to yourself in a sense too, because sometimes when you start to learn, you feel bad or like, oh, I used to think this and I used to think this. And then I heard someone say, but we only know what we know. 
Yes. We only know what we know in that moment. So as we learn, we can change, but we're also still not perfect, you know? And I remember I was a single parent for many years and my kiddo, you know, when I used to take her grocery shopping, this is one of the experiences we had too when she was little is, you know, we'd be in the shopping cart and she would do really well as we walked around and, and, and got groceries. Why? Because the cart was moving. She's a sensory seeker. So she can uh. input the noise around her when she's moving. And then all of a sudden you'd get to the till. And then she'd like melt at the till and get quite upset. And I always thought it was attention seeking in a sense, because I thought, oh, I'm chatting to the cashier, I'm putting my stuff on. And then, you know, learning about the sensory profile. And I thought, well, there she stops. And then what do you hear at the till? Beep, 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 oh, right? Yeah. The sound that just irritated her to no end. And then she melted. And I thought, okay, I was a single parent. I was like, I can't afford to get a, you know, a sitter every time I need to grab groceries. And so it was just finding strategies in those moments. Giving what her, did you do? You know, I can imagine you're rocking the cart back and forth or you give or, her something distracting yeah. to do. Yeah. A phone or something with earphones, or I would get her out of the cart and just put her to work. Be yeah. like, do this, you know, put and this just on the cart her. for mommy, put this on the belt for mommy. Yep. And just kept her moving um, and learning, you know, when, when she was little, she used to really struggle to eat too. She just never really felt hungry and so eating, but we realized um, that when she was in like a boat or a car or something, she loved to eat. So just uh-huh. getting her when she was moving, she could eat. So it's like learning all these things and there's just being quite aware of that sensory piece or. You How know, did you accommodate that at home then? So you're getting to eat, did you get her a wobbly stool or what did you yeah, get? Or let her stand while she eats. Um yeah, having our yeah. sit still was, a, yeah, we had a wiggle seat. Yeah, we just, and sometimes stuff works for a while and then it stops working and then you get creative. And, story, yep. <laughs> yeah. And every day she'd come home with her full lunch. She usually never ate her lunch. And, <laughs> My son doesn't either. And and like a little bit now he grazes, but from the time he was little, lunch was not what he ate, but he was um, like in a, in a supportive preschool from the time he was three years old. And there's a lot of people around and it's noise and it's distracting. And so it's probably combination of meds, you know, he's on um, medication for ADHD. So he's not going to be hungry at that time, but it's also all the yeah. sensory pieces. Yeah. And the different smells that are going on right now, people's foods and like, and trying stuff. to make choices. Choices are very hard. So he prefers his life is more simple for him. If he has the same food every single day at lunch, is your daughter yeah. the same way? You know, she would get somewhat creative. I think I always tried to engage her in conversation about what it is that, what do you want for lunch? Um, as she got older, when she was in the one school, she came home for lunch. So that was better. She yes. could get a breather. Um, but yeah, she, you know, we just go through phases like yeah. where she'll eat her sandwich and her apple and her cookie. And then the sandwich comes home for the next three weeks. So I used yeah. to, when he was little, I think this is helpful actually for parents to talk about like when he was, and when he was like little, um, it was, I always put snacky foods together. So some yeah. little nibbly. So it'd be, um, he loves vegetables. So it'd be maybe some cherry tomatoes <clears throat> and ma- cucumber slices. He loved cucumber slices, hates cheese. So that was never in there. Not a big cracker guy, but if it was those Ritz cheese crackers, a little mini Ritz cheese crackers with that cheese in the middle, he'd eat that. So little bits like that or cut up red pepper. He would love to eat that. So I would just put little snacky things together for him. Yeah. So he could kind of not, because if he had a whole sandwich, he's overwhelmed and he won't take a bite. It's too big. Yeah. Yeah, but there's if, not enough time. They don't understand. Not enough time. Yeah, and now he's 14 and he doesn't like sandwiches except for his grilled cheese sandwich, and and yeah, so little snacky things, and so that that's what he gets for his lunch now too. And yeah. it's it's not the it's not the picture of organic and health and all that, but it's what he's going to eat. And so these are the trade offs we have to make. Yeah. 
Yeah. It's getting food in them at the end of yeah. the day, it's getting food on them. And yeah. especially if they're on meds for ADHD, that's a, a suppressant, right? It doesn't yeah. often make them hungry. And so, yeah. you know, we like, and then we struggled too for a, a long time was getting her to a healthy weight. She's mm-hmm. at a healthy weight now, but before she wasn't um, even Very making, underweight, extremely, um, they said that she was even on the, the chart. She didn't make the chart for the weight um, six months or like in September, back in September. And so, wow. We were, so do yeah. you use Ensure or do you use heavy fat, like heavy fat yogurt, or what do you use to help her? Um, we, um, now it's, it's, um, it's more so cause she's on some meds for her mental health that okay. I think has helped her gain some weight. Okay. Um, but yeah, we tried everything from Ensure, you know, Pediasure, protein shakes, you know, high fat foods, but yeah, when she started grade eight, she was 70 pounds. My um, goodness. Yeah. And she was really tiny. Um, and then you have a hard time regulating body temperature, right? I think a combination too of her sleeping has made a big difference. Um, getting her to sleep has, has helped her become healthier. Yep. That's a big part of di- digestion and mental health yep. and just body regulation. Your body needs that time to rest and regenerate. Absolutely. Yeah. And she does have a digestive, you know, diagnosis as well. So that's kind of one of the comorbidities along with FASD, isn't it? We talk sometimes about those very many over 400 um, comorbidities and often digestion can be part of that. And Miles talks about that. Miles Hemmelreich talks about that for his own experience. Yeah. Yeah. So there's, so when our kids are having trouble, you know, getting the nutrition that they need and they maybe have GERD that uh, refluxing and they have trouble digesting, or maybe they've got reactive bowels or whatever we can, we can attribute that to that prenatal alcohol exposure, right? Shanna, how is that? that? For sure. It's absolutely, sorry, absolutely a connection. I think the challenge is that medical professionals don't understand that connection all the time. They haven't been taught that connection. They haven't been taught that connection. Yeah. And then that's where the sensory profile impacts as well, right? Because when like my kiddo has that really heightened pain threshold. And so if she can't physically see something, um, I always say like on a scale of one to 10, if she's telling me something hurts and she can't see it. So when her stomach hurts, it's a 15 before she tells me, mm-hmm. you know, and so you, many trips into the ER um, and stuff like that. And, you know, I'm saying she's, she's backed up. Like we need to give her something to help her. She was really compacted. Like we know this. Very common too with people of FASD, very, very common that um, constipation. Yeah. But when you don't look like you're in pain. Yeah. When you don't look like you're in pain, how do you know? My son can have ear infections and I have no idea. When he was a baby, he got tubes in his ears. Like he was going through so many things. He had a, he had a GERD. He had, he kept getting aspiration in his lungs. He get aspiration pneumonia. He was, and so we were doing thickened feeds and doing lavage of the lung and all this kind of stuff. Um, but then they're doing a check on him and then they're saying, well, he needs surgery and he needs tubes in his ears. And I'm like, why? Well, he's had multiple ear infections. He didn't never cried. He never had a fever. Yeah. How you know, he was at the doctor all the time. How is it that he required tubes? In it? But, he, but he did. And that's also very common. Yeah. But I didn't know that back then. That's 14 oh, years ago. No. Um, taking her into the ER because her stomach was, you know, her bowels are backed up. And then they, it's also communicating with our kids. We become like essentially the experts in the language they understand. And, you know, and I remember the doctor pushing on her stomach saying, does this hurt? And I'm going, does it feel different? You know, like, is anything tingling? Is it? And the doctor getting quite abrupt with me saying like, she can speak for herself. I said, absolutely she can, but you don't speak her language. I do, you know, good for you, mom. Understand that language, you know, when she says something tingles, she's in pain. 
You look for reactions. Yes. Somebody just told me, another mom told me same thing about stomach and being in a lot of pain. And when the doctor pressed on it, she giggled and giggled and giggled because that's how her body responded to pain. And so it was very confusing for any of the doctors who are palpating her, but as they were palpating her tummy to actually get an accurate read. But mom knew if she's giggling, that's a pain response. Yeah. They have to speak the language. Yeah. You have to speak their language and you have to, you remember, I remember one time her falling off the bunk bed in the middle of the night, she's camping. She's got up to go to the bathroom, lost her footing. And, you know, my husband called me and said, well, she has a big goose ache, but she said she doesn't have a headache, you know, put her on the phone. I said, no, mom, she said, I fell. I got up to go to the bathroom. I'm a big bump on my head. Said, do you have a headache? Nope. So do you know what a headache is? No. What's a headache? Does the inside of your head hurt? Oh, it hurts so much, mom. You know? So it's like, yeah that whole language piece. And like I said, she presents so well and she doesn't like, she'll say yes to everything when she doesn't understand. Presenting well is not a good thing in some ways, you know, like it's a good mask and we have to, and and it isn't always masking, but it's present well because maybe they're compliant. They're not acting up, but it's, it's actually not helpful in some ways because then just as you're saying, the needs are unspoken. Yeah. Maybe the critical illness is unspoken. Yeah. So yeah, take a just, lot of attunement as a parent, a lot of attunement. And you're, and I always say, we're just always learning, right? Like always learning. Yeah. Like know. I know you are so well-versed in FASD because you've had to be, because yeah. you're, because you have a daughter that you're trying to serve very, very well, just as we all are. And that's how you've become, let's say the expert or the specialist in FASD. But do you feel like, you know, absolutely everything? No. <laughs> yeah, exactly. No. Yeah. No, I still, I still, some days I was like, where's the book that tells me how to do this? Yes. yes. Who can I call? Where's the book? As a mom, do you have friends who understand? Do you have a friend who maybe has a child just a few years older than you that's been through the stuff that can kind of guide and mentor you or not so much? Uh, sometimes I have those connections. I have friends, yeah, that have been through that I, I can reach out to for sure. Um, you know, but Nobody in a really close circle in the area that I live in. It's more so connections across Canada that I have. Text your friend. Yeah. 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 And so there's ways to find support for sure. I think though, when you made the comment about COVID, right? Like one of the things that really sat with me when COVID hit is, you know, that isolation piece. And I was like, we're so used to isolation already. Yeah. (laughs) Right. Like everyone else, you know, and we had a hard time. So, but, and we're used to this. Yeah. And the COVID restrictions have lifted. We're still living in isolation, you know, yeah. in a sense. Yeah, you're still in isolation and you're still in hypervigilance. I remember when COVID and it was the middle of COVID and the kids were, I had three kids here online learning, worked well for two, not at all for the other. Yeah. Um, and my, I was talking with my counselor about it and she said, about this hypervigilance and being aware because of COVID and, and it's this invisible thing and you're having to be aware of it for your kids and try to communicate for your kids and how stressful that must be. I said, no, we do this every day. We have done this every day for their whole life because they have an invisible disability. I am hypervigilant every day Yeah, and advocating and keeping them safe every day. Yeah, And she's like, oh yeah. So did COVID add a layer? Yes. But in some ways it eliminated three. Yeah. Right. Absolutely. I know one time someone said I was doing an interview for something and they were trying to like, and, and maybe you've seen this too, as you start talking more, you know, openly, openly about FASD is people want to hear all the negative as well. Like, tell me the hardest thing about raising a kid with FASD. And I remember that I answered that and I was like, it's not her, it's systems. That's the hardest part. Cause as a parent, when you're raising a kid with FASD, you know, in lots of ways, we're the mental health professional, 
we are mom, we're the advocate, we're the support, we're all these different things. And I recently had a medical professional say, Shanna, you can't be all of those pieces. And I said, I don't want to be, but I'm trying really hard to find those pieces for her. So I don't have to be that, you know, but like we get funding in place. It's cut every six months, every six months. And then you, it's like every four months, then you have to start the application process. You have to, you know, Yep. FASD is not in policy in so many places. I found out, you know, it's just like autism is so well funded in Saskatchewan. Yes. Um, do they need it? For sure they do. But at some point, like we need people to wake up and fund FASD, you know? And so I think that as a, as a caregiver is my hardest challenge is, is keeping those supports in place. And at the end of the day, after being hypervigilant, you're working, you've got your whole day and then you have to sit down and fill out another application and you have to, track down all these letters that say they still have FASD and they still have support. Yeah. Still, it's still a lifelong disability. I have, uh, I've talked with parents who've had to say they, they're renewing their application for supports for their child, whether that be for respite or for therapy or for, you know, OT. And they're like, well, have you taken any courses so that you're better able to meet your kid's need? Um, has your ch- child been in therapy so that they no longer need this need? You know, they have this need. And the parent is saying, this is a lifelong disability. What about this? Don't you understand? And and, and that's exactly the point. The, the people who are processing some of these things, some of them are not aware of FASD. So they're looking at this as this is a temporary behavioral problem that yeah. should be able to get better. And you shouldn't need these services anymore. Yeah, and they have no working, like you said, no working knowledge. And sometimes I've questioned that, and that's not always responded to well when I ask them what their working knowledge on FASD is or why they think they're qualified to make the decision as to whether someone gets funding or not if they have FASD. And I ask for responses to be put in writing. And I have a letter um, when funding got cut, and it was after I appealed that, that, you know, said, quote, unquote, that she should be independent of her disability by now. She was 11 at the time. She should be independent of her disability right now, just like a person with autism is, you know, independent of their disability or a person with Down syndrome is independent or cerebral palsy. They've all grown it by now. Yeah. Give me a break. I was like, right. She's had this service long enough. She should have learned some strategies. I was like, yeah, she also has memory deficits, you know, just because it's here today doesn't mean it's there tomorrow. Like this is lifelong. You know, one story I shared too, right. Is she had the disability tax credit approved and they cut it when she was 12. Cause I have to prove to the the revenue Canada that she didn't outgrow her FASD. And to me, that's hugely problematic that people, you know, that are in positions that make these calls. Right. And it's just like another thing you have to do. It's another application. It's, it's a waste of money. It's a waste of money, but you know, if they're scrolling down the DSM five, no FASD. Yeah. Right. If that's what they're looking for, right. The diagnostic manual, if it's not in there yeah, and yeah, and it's not recognized, right. We still don't have a national policy on FASD. Yeah. So where is the national government support, the federal government support, and then we can have provincial government support, you know, although we have, you know, there is some, right. Like in Alberta, there is, there is, and in Saskatchewan there is, but we need a national policy so that there are disability supports for individuals across the lifespan. Cause yeah. this is, and I, I talk about that lots in training. And I think what happens right at some of those political levels is they, they're still in the belief that FASD is 100% preventable. Yeah. Right? They don't realize that how damaging that statement is in the first place. And then they believe, you know, and I always say, you know what, the best form of prevention is support. Yeah. <laughs> support is the best form of prevention out there. And we need to fund support. But I always say she's my, my, my kiddos, my motivation to do the work that I do. And, she's your best you know, teacher, isn't she? 
Yeah. And, you know, I, I definitely, you know, share that there's nobody that knows this, this disability inside and out. And I always tell people, if you meet that person, call their bluff because they don't. <laughs> Exactly. If they have it figured out, you know, come to my house for a little bit. Exactly. Exactly. Come learn with us. Um, Learn with us. And that's exactly it. And that's, that's when, you know, somebody's got it right. You know, uh, Donna DeBolt, when she does her training, when she was doing training, it would be, you know, the number one protective factor for an individual with FASD. Well, first of all, it would be an early diagnosis. We know that's not always possible, but then a stable placement being that whatever that stable placement is, hopefully it's a family. And then they are well-trained. They have, she would always say training, 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 and more training. And if you think you've had enough training, you need more training. And that's you and I, we even give training and we still get more training Yeah, because you have to keep it up. And then you need coaching and you need your grief and loss work and you need respite. This is what it takes. And I would add one more to that. And that's that you need your community of friends who understands that you've got somebody that you can um, just release it all with but yeah. also that understands you and empathize with you. So you don't feel so alone because that isolation yeah. is so difficult. Yeah. Yeah. And I'm lucky, like I said, I have connections and then also, you know, a really close friend in Saskatoon as well. That's a huge support to, to us and my kiddo too. And, you know, my family is quite supportive as well. So, you know, my folks are good at taking her when we, we need some, a little bit of a breather or she needs a break. And yeah. And that's a healthy thing, you know, yeah. We think that maybe our kids don't need that anymore, but they really do. They need a break from us. They need a break from just whatever stress or just change the environment. They need a break and you need a break. So you can come back and be a better caregiver, better parent. Yeah. Cause yeah. When you're operating in burnout mode, it's tough. So yeah. Have you been to burnout mode? Uh, yeah, I would say, um, dabbled in it if you want to say that, What's that? <laughs> I think we dabble in it all the time a little bit. Yeah, um, that's fair. And I think in COVID, right, um, because, you know, well, that isolation piece, and then we didn't see family for however many years. So, you know, the the, the breaks were non-existent and therapies shut down. Um, so As Online learning, cyber learning, and you're trying to work from home too. And how does this even happen? Something has to give. Yeah, I think, you know, towards the end, she was in grade six at the time. I was like, what does she need geometry for? Come on, like, <laughs> we're done. Um, you know, I just kind of um, thought, you know what, this isn't worth it. And about learning as well that, you know, when I became her teacher, we know that their job is really hard, um, but also how much I think she was kind of, in a sense, pooling her her school um, I really pushed that she was assessed again at school when she went back to in-person because I said, she's not where you think she is. Mm-hmm. Um, and she wasn't, um, but it, it was, it was a tough go there. And plus I have a little guy at home too. He just turned seven. Um, so, you know, trying to manage, it was, it was kind of intense. And then he dealt with guilt too. I always felt bad because I was like, we're privileged people in a pandemic, yeah. you know, not everyone has a safe home to be in and we have that and that, you know, so yeah. Really, because especially when you're working in the community or you're just more aware of the vulnerable people that are around and you've come through COVID, you've come through eighth grade. So what, how do you provide structure, support, supervision, routine over the summer? Um, That's a really fantastic question that I do not. (laughs) That I don't have an answer to. Um, yeah, it's hard. It's hard because you have to get creative because she's almost 14. And so, you know, it's, I don't know, she's going to spend some time at grandma and grandpa's and um, I'm working from home so I can be around. Um, she just had a really hard couple of weeks. So I think I'm just letting her hang out and, and chillax and kind of, you know, take some breaths and enjoy the quiet house. When you live moment to moment, it's, 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 
<laughs> it's good and it's bad, I think, in some ways, but I always just plan for tomorrow, today and tomorrow. That's kind of my motto. I'm going to get through today and then see what the plan is for tomorrow. And then we move and saw the sentence at the end of the school year. And I was like, holy man, it's your last day of school. And I don't like, I'm not ready. <laughs> Last week too, I was like, oh, I have a seven-year-old. Like, I guess I should figure this out, you know. <laughs> like, it's um, like your first summer. You've never done this before. <laughs> yeah. And and I just, I was like, I can't stress over that stuff anymore. It just, you know. Um, Get by day by day. Yeah. One strategy that worked well for us for many years um, was I would put my three children when they were younger in day camps all summer long. And I didn't know to do that. It was a support worker that told me to do that because I was doing like you planning, you know, day by day and like, okay, today's going to be, we're going to go to the pool or we're going to go to the library or, you know, like doing some mini structure. It's exhausting though, chasing after three, you know, and the structure and the routine and the supervision level that they need is just unbelievable, you know? Um, and so I started putting them at the YMCA day camps. And fortunately I had that funded. There was no way I was a single parent. There's no way I could have paid for that. But through in Alberta, if you adopt through the government, then you have post-adoptive supports, um, or supports for permanency and they would fund that for me. Otherwise there was no way. Right. Cause I kept that up for many years because it gave my kids the positive experience and the structure, the support, the positive role modeling. So they would keep up their social skills and their, you know, involvement with other kids and keep them active. It's really great for them. But, you know, about 8, 13, they start aging out and there's not much available. 12, 13, no. they age out and there's not much available. Yeah. My son, I was able to put him in some day camps. He's 14. So last year, this year, he's been in day camps through the University of Alberta um, in their athletic programs. So oh, soccer cool. camps. Yeah climbing camps and curling camps. And so that's been very helpful. Yeah. But um, mm-hmm. my girls kind of sit on their, their coach potatoes and they sit on their tablets for most of the summer because they don't like going outside. And you know, what hill are you going to die on? Right, Shanna? Yeah. Not ideal, but what hill are you going to die on? They hate being outside. They don't like being active. Yeah. It's just a matter of keeping them busy. And to the, what their level of physicality is and are they introverts extroverts are they athletic are they not athletic are they interested and what they do is they read a lot they're not just they're not just scrolling or on youtube or something like that they're reading a lot so okay that's really who they are so but trying to find that way but also create these breaks where like no you guys actually do have to go for a walk yeah yeah <laughs> Sunshine trampoline kids, outside that helps she goes out to the trampoline lot, yeah so yeah social media she doesn't have access to social media and stuff right no, now, we don't so. yeah Let's talk about that. What are some of the prevention strategies you've put around internet access for your daughter? She has access. She has a phone and an iPad and, you know, but she doesn't get it at night. I keep it. And she doesn't have access right now to any social media, which she is not happy about. Um, But with a combination of, you know, FASD and mental health, I think it's healthy for her not to have that. And I just shifted the blame onto the the mental health professionals. And I said, you know, they said, actually, you can't have that right now. But she is, she loves, she's pretty um, creative in a sense. She's really artsy. And so right now she loves to crochet. Um, she goes through phases as, as lots of people do. They fixate on stuff, right? When they have that ASD. And, and so she's right now, her fixation is crocheting. She excels at it, um, you know. She watch YouTube times. videos about how to crochet this and how to crochet that. Yeah, and then she just creates stuff on her own. Like cool. the one night she came up and she made a top. She was wearing this top. And I said, holy man, that's cool. And I said, well, did you use a pattern? She goes, no, I just made it in my head. And I thought, you know, for a kid that struggles in math, there's a lot of counting and there's a lot of, that takes a lot of skill to do yeah. that. Yeah. So just, you know, it's a, it's a unique 
And then, you know, she's using her hands and she's, you know, all the yarn and stuff she uses has to be very soft. It yes. has to be, you know, so. Is um, it like baby yarn almost? Yeah. There's, she researched the kind of yarn she wanted. And so, yeah, it has to be very soft, different stuff. And she makes stuffy. She's making all kinds of stuff. And, and that's so, so good. She's that's creative and it's problem yeah. solving because how is this going to work? And she's figuring things out and yeah, yeah pro- uh, that's really wonderful development. And then she gets all the praise for it too. Yeah. And feels so and a pride and a job well done. Like yeah. that's talk about building upon strengths. Yeah. And then she really was into bullet journaling and like all kinds of like, so when she gets, it depends it, it, how long the fixation lasts and then she's <laughs> onto something new. Um, but if she has access to social media, she won't, she'll fixate on that more than she would. And I'd rather keep her on the creative side. It's healthier for her. Much healthier for her. Yes. Yeah. And it helps her regulate too that crochet because you're yeah. just working your hands all the time and that you're counting and you're keeps you in the moment too. I know. Cause when I do crocheting, it keeps me in the moment because my mind likes to wander, but then I make a mistake. So I have to pull out. Okay. How long was my mind wandering? I have to pull that yeah. all out and start it again. Yeah. How are you preparing for high school? That's a good question. Um, she has met with a high school. We've taken her to the high school now, and she is going to go into a program at the one high school, and she is quite pumped about it. And so um, we'll do lots of conversations about it, and then we'll go before high school starts again, and she'll see the school. And, you know, lots of conversations with the school about what she needs, you know, and and hoping for the best and <laughs> book a couple of days off work when school starts. So I'm ready in case she, she's not successful in the first couple of days and not that she's not successful, just that maybe she won't make it through the whole day. Maybe and that's she, okay. Yeah. And that's okay. Um, you know, I, I don't stress about marks or, or grades. I just want her to be healthy and happy and, you know, make some friends and yep. enjoy it a bit. Um, yeah. Yeah. Let her enjoy the process. That's what I believe too. If she's health, if she's healthy and happy, she's available to learn. And I know, I don't know. I will see how high school is. I am a little bit concerned because with elementary school, I had a little bit more push. I think I would say things like, I don't want homework coming home. Um, she's worked hard enough all day. She's not a kid that can come home and do this. She's not going to remember often that was happening. Like she doesn't remember how to do it when she gets home and then she's just exhausted. And then it's like, I'm like, I can't, this is not. And and so I'm hoping in high school, they'll let me have that same wish. I don't know. (laughs) You're a force to be reckoned with. I think you'll get there. I think. And if she's in a program, what is the program? And to what level do they understand child has a neurodiversity and she's done, she's exhausted. Yeah. And I think it always depends on the staff at the school. Like if they're, you know, open to learning, et cetera. And sometimes people are, sometimes they have it figured out already. Yeah. You know, they don't want your input. Yeah. Yeah. It depends. And so, yeah, one strategy I've definitely learned over my years as, as parenting and in the professional world is I always, you know, you teach this and then you're like, oh, I can go do these meetings alone. I don't need any help. Like I know this, like I got this and I have learned I don't. Yeah. Um, I don't ever attend um, school meetings, et cetera, anymore alone. I always take a, a support person with me um, or even now medical appointments because um, it's, yeah, it's just sometimes as a parent, you're just seen as the parent and that your, your working knowledge on what's going on isn't rated as high as the professional that you bring in with you. So who would you bring in with you? For example, you are the professional, you have the business card who says you're an FASD trainer. Who would yeah. you bring with you? 
I bring our executive director. Oh, I like that title. Executive director, smack yeah. that card on the table. Yeah. <laughs> I know I'm really lucky. She's really awesome. And so she is a huge support and a, she's a really awesome support for, for my kiddo as well. And so she often will come to meetings um, and sometimes it's, you know, she can just talk to the disability and then, you know, as a parent, you just, they don't recognize, you know, that you have some knowledge and what's going on. And I also too advocate for, um, for them to ask my kiddo, yep. you know, and this here, here's a cool thing. Cause, um, that ASD network, um, we, we follow five guiding principles. And one of them is to be client led, which is just a little bit different than client centered. So it means that like no meeting should be happening without the person who's accessing support at the table, which not every organization follows, right? Mm -hmm. And so I said to my daughter at the start of the school year, I said, we're having a meeting with this school. I said, this is about you. And you're the smartest one about you. Like you're the expert. So I said, you're old, like you need to be there. Mm -hmm. And so she sat in the meeting. I said, we have nothing to hide. We talk about this. And it was a really cool thing because we were talking about a strategy for anxiety and, you know, us adults who thought we were really smart came up with a strategy and she was able to say, like, I know you're trying to help me, but that's not going to help. Wow. Yeah. It's not going to work. And this is why it's not going to work. You know, I thought, oh, how cool is that? And that empowers her and gives her a voice. So I think including her in those conversations as well is really, really important. And so people also recognize they, you know, connect, they can connect with her. And then I also really stress, um, with the school is especially with the school is that if you take the time to build a relationship with her, that is key. That is key. If you don't have a connection with her, you can't put that on her. Um, That has something that hasn't been built with her relationship will keep her in school. Yeah. If she has a connection, that means more than anything else. I love that relationship will keep her in school, but relationship, sometimes teachers, parents like to leverage a relationship, you know, do please do this for me, you know, just write this one sentence for me, that won't work. No, that's not how the relationship works. You know, it's that because of that relationship that you like this child, you have hope and faith in this child, and you can encourage them to do their best, but you also recognize them and their humanity and what it is they need. That's why they feel safe. But we can't use that relationship as a lever. Yeah, no, you can't that lever will break. Yeah. I know last year when she was in grade seven, she had a phenomenal teacher and he was so good and she had a really tough year, but she had a connection with him and he had a really, like he had a special spot for her. And I always said, you're the reason she made it through the school year. Um, And then he left the school and we ran into him one night night or one day out in the community and my daughter saw him and I thought she was going to cry. She just like, you know, and I said, that's the impact that we're looking for, you know, is our kids are, you know, they feel loved at school. They have to be loved at school. They have to be cared for and loved and, and valued as people at school. And it has to be very clear to them that they matter and that they are liked. Yeah. Just taking that, that time, if you can, when you're a professional to, to make that connection, to take the time to build that relationship, it's huge how long does that take? It's a smile and it's a knowing their name and it's remembering something they're interested in and having those conversations and learning how they learn. Right. That was one cool thing. She, I remember the, in grade seven, the first year she came home with her first math test and I don't think she, she didn't come close to passing. And then she rewrote it and came home with like an 80 teacher. And I was like, what happened? Like, how did this, like, how did she go from not passing to an 80? And he said, I read her the questions. If I give her the test, she can't do it. 
but if I sit with her and I read her the question, she can do it. And I thought, how cool is that? He took the time to learn how she learned. Yes. I love that. Sometimes my, the, my kids' teachers read the questions, sometimes then also scribe the answers because sometimes the motor skills, well, not more than motor, but all those different cognitive skills from understanding the question, finding the answer, then flipping that into writing and then yeah. actually putting that on paper. That's too much. And my, and my kids couldn't do that when they were younger yeah. at all. So if the teacher could read it, let the child process it and then, okay, what's your answer? And the teacher would scribe it. There we go. Now, so it's just an opportunity, a different way of demonstrating their knowledge. Can we Absolutely. be creative? Can we provide another way of, of demonstrating the knowledge? Yeah. Great. Wonderful conversation. So you've got your work cut out for you as you're entering <laughs> high school. I bet you you're filled with optimism <laughs> with a shadow of dread. Yeah, absolutely. It's, yeah, it's going to be hard. <laughs> yeah. And just wondering, you know, you know how that goes. It's like, but that's the living in the moment, right? That's you have to live in the hour. moment. You cast, you can't cast your eye ahead other than you can know, okay, these are the paperwork I'm going to have to have in order. I'm going to have to call Andrea to come to the meeting with me. Yeah. And um, it's okay. we got this. And really having some confidence in your own efficacy that, Hey, I've got this as a parent. Yeah. I do know what I'm talking about. But um, I bring my along my, um, in this case, your colleague, but the executive director of the Saskatchewan FASD network to come and have that conversation with you. You know, I was speaking with Dr. Jacqueline Pye, who a professor at the University of Alberta and clinical psychologist and researcher, expert on FASD. And we were chatting one time and I'm like, hey, Jackie, do you ever get mommed when you're doing those school meetings? She goes, oh, gosh, yeah. You know, here she's got a PhD. She teaches at the university, but when she's there in front of her school, you know, her, her child's teacher, she's just a mom. Yeah. So you've got to just like, you know, she could pull out that, um, excuse me, I'm Dr. Jacqueline Pye, you know, but yeah. she, she doesn't, but yeah. you know, like it happens to all of us. So don't take it personally and find your resource yeah. person to come along with you to school. Totally. I was pretty stubborn for a while. And I thought, I got this. I can do it by myself. And, you know, and then I was like, yeah. Well, I, because skill wise, you can, but they're not, they're looking at you through the parent lens. And so you, as a parent, you're the problem. You're obviously not providing the structure and the routine at home. You're not disciplining your child enough. You're not holding your child to account. So these are your problems, mom. Yeah. Right. And yeah. clearly that's not the case. And sometimes when you do advocacy work, I feel like it gets worse before it gets better. Or sometimes, you know, maybe the difference isn't made for our kiddos, but maybe they'll be made for the next set of kiddos that come through. That's kind of my hope as well. If sometimes if we don't feel the difference right away, maybe it's going to. We can hope so. Yeah. We can hope so. Yep. Absolutely. Well, thank you, Shanna, for this time. Well, thank really you. really appreciate it. Mom Talk with Shanna Moore. Again, my thanks to Shanna Moore for making time. What a great conversation we had. And I, I just loved everything I learned about, you know, how she was able to pivot and adjust from hockey to diving, the importance of OT, occupational therapy in her life and in her daughter's life as they grow and learn more about sensory profiles and sensory diets and the kind of inputs that, that our young people need to regulate themselves. And as they learn and grow, as we all learn and grow together, our kids become stronger self-advocates. And that's what they need to do because you know, we're with them for a time, but they're going to live with FASD their whole lives. So it's important that they understand their disability. They also understand what works for them so they could speak up for themselves. If you saw yourself in this episode, if you connected, I'd love to hear from you. Just drop me a note at FASDFamilyLife at gmail.com. I'd love to hear what's working for you. And if you have any questions for me that you'd like me to address on the show, send that my way as well. Now, as promised, I wanted to speak with you about RunFASD. Run FASD, Stepping Up Awareness 2022. 
is happening September 9th to the 25th, and it's a virtual 5K raising awareness for FASD. And you can run, walk, or roll, whatever works for you. Now, what is it? Run FASD embodies strength, tenacity, empowerment, hope, and vision. A virtual 5K event that can happen at your own pace wherever you are from September 9th to the 25th, 2022. This is the dream of author, runner, and FASD self-advocate, Rebecca Talou, who you've heard on the show. RunFASD encourages people with FASD, their allies, and supporters to make this invisible disability visible. This virtual 5K can be completed at a walk, run, or roll, and in your own time at your own pace. Can't walk or run? No problem. You can still donate to support FASD. Hey, and the FASD Family Life Podcast has a team also. We are partnering with Rebecca Tolu to raise awareness globally of FASD. We know FASD is a worldwide health issue, and we want to mobilize all of the parents, caregivers, allies, and supporters to come and walk with us for a virtual 5K sometime between September 5th and the 25th. Come on board with me. Sign up for the RunFASD 2022 virtual 5K I've put the link in the show notes to join the FASD Family Life team so that we can create this global awareness. Wouldn't that be amazing? When you register too, you can register for swag. There are t-shirts, there's medals. For my Edmonton listeners, that's the city I live in, Edmonton, Alberta. For my Edmonton listeners, would you be interested in gathering with me live and walking with me on September 9th? That's a Friday. I wonder if we could pull that off. If you're interested in walking with me on September 9th, Send me a message at fasdfamilylife at gmail.com and let's see what we can put together. As always, thank you for spending your time with me. I know it's precious. And until next week, remember the struggle is real and so is success. I'll speak with you soon.